0: Welcome back to True Crime IRL. I'm Kelly Baron's Brink, and this is part three of my series that I did with Bob Mata and Darren Wood of the Defense Diaries podcast, where we are diving deep into the Anthony Garcia case. Garcia is convicted of killing four people over several years in the Omaha, Nebraska area, and technically, that makes him a serial killer, but... Was he really a serial killer, or was he just a jaded psychopath with a specific hit list seeking revenge on Creighton University? And did he really even commit these murders at all? That's the million-dollar question. If you haven't listened to parts one and two of my series yet, go back and do that first and then come back here because we are diving deeper into the crimes, into the killer's MO, and into the trial with Bob Mata from Defense Diaries. And we will get into all of that in just a moment. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Was one of them the vehicle uh, that yes. um Anthony's dad owned that vehicle or owned a ve- similar vehicle well, or it, something. Well, like, like from that? my
1: client's perspective it was even worse. Anthony had once owned that vehicle. Okay. And w- actually owned that vehicle back in 2008 and I think in in like 2012 or 2011 he had given that vehicle to his parents. Okay. Who still had it like so Cause when, and we're kind of jumping all over the place, but when, when they arrested Garcia, it was, it was a joint task force with the feds and Omaha PD, you know, that they had a lot of cops on this thing. So when they, when they nailed him, you know, it was an orchestrated bust, you know, they had been following him, tracking him, pinging him. And so when they made the decision to pull him over, they had people ready in California at both his sister's house and his parents' house to effectuate search warrants there. They had people in Indiana that were ready to get into his home in Indiana. effect wow. So, yeah, it all it's happened.
0: quite an orchestrated yeah. endeavor. There. Yeah, it, yeah, it all happened, thing. like,
1: right at the same yeah. time. So they knew, you know, they knew that they were taking him down, like, at yeah. that time and that
0: date. So what were the other two smoking gun things you were talking about? So
2: you have... The first smoking gun. So, before we go there, let me briefly.
1: So, Hunter goes cold. Okay, five years, and they really did investigate the hell out of it. You know, like when I came into the case, I got fifteen binders filled with their investigation. So, they they did a lot of police work. Like it mattered. This was like a family that mattered to them. It was in a community that you know that mattered. So, they they really investigated the hell out of it, and they just couldn't make the link. So, fast forward to Mother's Day of 2013. This nice older couple, the Brombecks, the state's timeline is that are, you know, between 415, 445 on Mother's Day that uh, an intruder comes, knocks on the door. Roger Brumbeck opens the door. He is shot uh, four times from an intruder who is standing outside of the house and he shoots into the house. The intruder then steps over uh, Brombeck's body. Mrs. Brumbeck had run to the kitchen to arm herself with a knife. Mm-hmm. Again, the killer grabs another knife from the kitchen, and a, and a knife fight ensues between Mary Brumbeck and and the killer. Mary Brumback is stabbed in, in in excess of thirty five times. Wow, twenty nine of them in her hands. So you know that's defensive wounds. Yeah, you know, she's fighting, trying to keep yep. it. like she was fighting for her life, mm-hmm. and. Um, I can only imagine, like when I try to envision that scene, like how it was going down when I was preparing for the case. Well, I mean, let me ask you, would you, you know, if somebody just shot your husband, he's laying dead, he's chasing you around with a knife, he's stabbing you repeatedly in the hands, you're fighting for your life. I mean, would you be screaming bloody murder? Like, I mean, just like instinctually? I mean, do you think that you would? Probably. (laughs) Right. I mean, to me, like when I think about that. You know, I I don't know that you'd be saying things that were uh, necessarily clear and concise. No, But but you, I mean, I think that you would be screaming.
0: Probably. Like
1: help or just anything, anything that you could just, or just screaming at the top of your lungs, like screaming, literally bloody murder.
0: I would think. Right.
1: You know, so their timeline was always an issue for me. So the Brumbecks are then killed on the... On the third, I, I think that was a thirteenth as well, but it was it was definitively a mother Mother's Day, and it was in May, first beautiful day of the spring. You know, which if you kind of imagine a Mother's Day at about four thirty in a kind of a another bedroom community, probably a lot of barbecues going on. It was like a it was a beautiful day. I yeah. think it was like like low seventies. Perfect, yeah. perfect day. You know, family
0: like gatherings everywhere. Yeah. Right, mm-hmm. you know,
1: so. The, the, that timeline always haunted me. I always had a big problem with it because to have four gunshots being fired from outside of the house into the house and not one witness.
0: Nobody heard it. No one heard it. That can't be. That
1: can't be. <laughs> So, you know, and and these are the things like when you talk about California Dreaming and Generation Y that they simply because Todd Cooper, who wrote the book that most of these shows are using as their reference, simply didn't bring our evidence in that we Mm -hmm. that we entered into evidence that we thought was incredibly compelling. And, uh, you know, that story has just never been told. So, like, we're, you know, I'm going to start it here today with you kind of delving into, you know, kind of the defense side of it because this thing is not as clear cut as, as Todd Cooper likes to make it seem that yeah. it was.
0: And we are jumping around a little bit. So I have to apologize to our listeners, but it's really hard not to be jumping around yeah. because there is so much to cover and there are so many rabbit holes this case will bring you down and it's just so much to it. So it, it
1: is. And, you know, so but but kind of to nutshell it. So we've got the, the hunter's. Um, young Thomas Hunter and Shirley Sherman killed in in 2008 in March and then fast forward five years and then you go to the Brumbecks who were killed on Mother's Day of 2013 Mm -hmm. and like you had said just prior to me kind of jumping into the Brumbecks at that point they make the Creighton connection yeah they see that but because uh Roger brumbeck was either the the chair or the director of the department and and Hunter had either been the director or the chair. They were both very high ranking within yeah. the department. They then at that point say, "Okay, well, there's the connection so it, yes, they didn't kill Stephen Hunter, the father, but they killed his son, and he obviously was employed by creighton, so we've also got uh brumbeck who obviously was, again, employed at Creighton. So they had that connection. So they then go, uh, Derek Moise and other uh, cops from OPD go to Creighton, and they say, look, we, we've kind of discovered there's a connection between this cold case from five years ago and this, this Brumback killing, and we need everyone, a list of everyone that's had a beef of any kind with anybody either on staff or they were fired or they filed a lawsuit, whatever. Whatever the kind of beef is, we need those names and we're going back, you know, 25 years. Yeah. Like we want like a comprehensive list of anyone.
0: Mm-hmm. And this is where the dramatic music starts playing in my head because there was one name on multiple lists um, that they were. There were a couple of names. Were, oh, that repeated on everyone's list? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: So, um, yeah, there was, a, there was a Russian guy. The Russian. the Russian yeah,
0: I remember that, yeah, uh,
1: Michael Belenki, okay, who really had beef with mm-hmm. Creighton, really, really had beef, like the whole Belenki thing was eerie, like mm-hmm. this guy i I really liked him for the brumbeck thing, like he he had serious beef with Creighton, he had been terminated. Um, you know, he had made some really weird phone calls to like Omaha PD, you know, uh, like after he heard about, you know, after he heard about Brombeck getting mm-hmm. killed, you know, cause they were, they were looking into Brom, uh, into Blanke hard.
0: So rewind a little bit for people who aren't aware who, of who the Russian is. Who was this, this person? He, what, what he was, was his connection?
1: He was another resident of the program. Okay. Um, you know, and he was there you know at the same time that Garcia was, but he was in the program for longer a longer period of time. He was terminated from the program he ended up moving to the like kind of the great Northwest like up around Seattle, like on the border of Canada, and was kind of living like um in uncharted territory. He was like kind of like off the grid kind off of the grid yeah. kind of thing and, yeah. and You know, so they were looking hard and 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 like he actually ended up getting a gig up in Canada as a medical examiner, like a chief medical examiner, and he had a bunch of issues up there. Like he was he was screwing up like the autopsies? Is this the one? Okay. This is that guy. Okay. And so, Belenki, you know, so when they're trying to look at his alibi for the date in question in terms of the Brumbeck killings, it really didn't stand up. And when we did a lot of investigation into that, and it, you know, it turned out that the time cards that he had signed, because every time that they would have to go in, And you know, perform autopsies. They obviously indicated on a sheet. So his sheets did not did not hold up at all. Like he, it became clear that he was that he had said that he was there, but he was not there that day. So he
0: was falsifying records. Yeah, he absolutely was an attempt
1: to provide himself
0: an alibi. Yeah,
1: he was, and so we were we were all over him like as a defense team, we, we were like this blankie guy, you know, and in like this, this call that he made, and I don't know if it was the Derek Moise or not, but you know, it was it, like, it was very eerie. It was something to the effect of like, Oh, you know, like I, I heard the Brumbecks, uh got murdered. He's like, you know, that's really unfortunate, you know, cause in, in the cops, like they, Omaha had spared no expense in investigating these cases. Like they had traveled, up to Canada, they spent the money to go like investigate him. So they were looking hard at Belenke. He wasn't like a cursory suspect. He was a person of interest. So at that point, basically when they get the list, Belenke's one of the guys on there. Garcia's one of the guys on there. You know, there were a few names. So Derek Moist, just by kind of luck of the draw, draws Anthony Garcia's name. And what they did with almost everybody on the list, and if you're not aware, You don't have to be charged in order for the police to subpoena your bank and telephone records. I did
0: not know that.
1: So, and and to be honest with you, I did not either Hmm. until I got this case. You You can just
0: be a person of
1: interest, and they can they can subpoena they can subpoena your bank records. They can start going
0: through your life with a magnifying glass. Exactly.
1: So, Moise, you know, kind of like uh, you know, picking a name out of the hat, got Garcia. So that was one of the guys that he was looking at subpoenas his bank records, subpoenas his phone records, and he gets two hits. He sees that, uh, number one, that Anthony Garcia was in Omaha on the day because his phone had pinged, his GPS had pinged. So he was in Omaha on the day of the Brumback killing.
0: What reason would he have to be in Omaha? Because didn't he live in Indiana at the time?
1: He did. Um, We'll get to that. Okay. We'll get to that. And he also had drawn out money from an ATM like, like a couple days before, like like 600 bucks, I think, or something like that. So, but his, it was his presence in the state that really got Omaha to say, all right, this guy, because that was the first question they asked. Why was he in Omaha? Like, what reason did he have to be in Omaha yeah. that day? So um, they liked him immediately. So they, they you know, and... One of my beefs with how they handled the investigation was if he becomes a person of interest, you know, and they've kind of got that that kind of strong circumstantial evidence, you know, because mere presence is never enough. You can't just have it that, oh, well, he was in the state, so we think he's the murderer. Gotta have more than that. I mean, it it's it certainly it's creating a little smoke to where you're like, oh, okay, well, this guy doesn't really have any discernible reason to be here. The problem that I had with Omaha is that they never asked him. Like, he was never a question, ever. Like, like a, to me, the first move would have been, okay, we just subpoenaed his records. We know that he was here. Why don't we find out what his explanation is as to why he was in Omaha? And they didn't do that? That never took they place.
0: They just said, you're under arrest? <laughs> what I no, mean, so, no. So... What? It,
1: I mean, essentially, but there's, a, there's a, a period of time where they're investigating, where they're digging into him, right. you know, kind of trying to get as much information as they can about him going back to Creighton and, and getting as much information as they can about him, about like what went on in his, you know, career at Creighton, you know, like what was his beef? Like it was his beef of such an extent that it might drive him to kill, you know, right. five years after the fact. Remember, this is 2001. No, seven years after the fact is like it, it, it was like that type of gap between Hunter and when he's fired. And, then you know, we're talking 12 years, you know, after he's fired that that if he's the guy came back and he kills the Brumbecks. I mean, that's a hell of a grudge.
2: Hey, y'all, Bob here. So I just want to let you guys know why I love Nom Nom, the sponsor of the show. That's because our dog, Nanook, who's been an intricate part of our family for the last four years, is the pickiest eater out of any dog on the planet. We would give him the best of the best in terms of dry food, and the guy just was not having it. That all changed when the first box of Nom Nom came to our house. I cut open the package. I like to treat him a little bit, so I heat it up just a little bit, put it in a bowl, gone instantly. Every single time the dude loves. Nom nom! I can tell by the way he just devours it because I've never seen a meat like that before. And the reason that he loves it is because that nom noms made with real wholesome ingredients that you can see when you pour it into the bowl. It's like you can actually see the meat. You can see the vegetables. It's unbelievable. And they personalize it to your dog's needs. So it brings out their very best. I mean, this guy has boundless energy these days. I bring him out on his walks, and he's doing all the things that he loves to do. He's running and jumping and playing, tails going a million miles an hour. It's an amazing product, and it really has changed our dog's life, and our dog is such a huge, huge part of our life. It makes me feel good about what we've been able to do for him. So I cannot recommend more. If you have a dog in your life, treat them. Treat them like the king or the queen that they are in your family and go right now for 50% off for your no risk two week trial at nom.com slash DD. That is N O M.com slash DD for 50% off with a guarantee return. If your dog doesn't love it and I can guarantee you, you're not going to be returning anything again. That is nom.com slash DD for 50% off. You can thank me later.
0: So what exactly was
1: the beef with each of
0: those individuals? So
1: he was fired
0: by who, who led that Hunter?
1: See, but that's the thing. No, like that. That's what I was telling you yesterday. You you know, I mean, he had his issues at Creighton that we talked about yesterday. You know, the thing with the, you know, the Boutra and the the weirdo prank that he did where he's, you know, but Hunter still, even at that point, didn't terminate him. You know, he gave him the opportunity to resign. And But moreover, what what even flies more in the face of of the state's narrative is the fact that Hunter wrote him the letter and got him his next residency at, at UIC. You know, I mean, like without Hunter, he's not getting that. So it's like when you're kind of looking and, and he screwed that up, he, he being Garcia, you know, but that was no fault of Hunter's you know, Hunter just got him the gig and then he went and and screwed that up all on his own. Right, right. You know what I mean? So like as far as like having a beef with Hunter, it just didn't add up to me. Like, and it still doesn't add up to me. It just is one of those things where like the guy, despite how much this guy screwed up, he still didn't terminate him. And moreover, and more importantly, he got him his next gig in another residency at a reputable school. You know what I mean? It's not like he had to go down to you know, some kind of medical school in Mexico, right? like, I mean, he went to UIC. It's not Harvard by any stretch of the imagination, but it's certainly a reputable program, you know? So like I always had that beef kind of with that portion of their narrative because that the whole revenge thing was their whole theory. Their entire theory of the case was that him being fired, which wasn't accurate, you know, from that Creighton thing, just caused him to spin off that he could never recover in terms of his career. You know and which he was it. I mean, and
0: that didn't. That's not true at it's all. It's not true. I no. mean, he
1: he owned a home. I think he had like a like an older model Ferrari or Lamborghini. Yeah, he
0: he had like two. He had yeah, um, right. I mean, yeah, a couple of not, nice yeah, this, cars. This yeah, he was not destitute,
1: and he no. spent a ton of money at strip clubs. You that's know, right. like I mean, we laughed. But you know that's a that's a that ain't cheap. That ain't cheap. That's an expensive <laughs> hobby to have. You know, a hobby but I you know, love. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, the girls are, uh, you know, they're good at their job typically, and they can extract money from people pretty pretty well. So, you know, you have to imagine he was spending quite a bit of dough in there, and you know, so he wasn't destitute. And, and like I had said yesterday, he, he, like he is not the guy that at age seven decided, oh, I'm going to go to Harvard Medical School and I want to be one of the finest doctors that's ever graced the planet. Like that wasn't him. Like he had tried to go to law school first, didn't do well on the LSATs, kind of like decided, huh, ah, screw it. I'll take the I'll take the MCAT or whatever it is for medical school. And, you know, did well enough to get accepted out in, in Utah and, and decided to go to medical school. And, you know, his parents were both working class folks. His father was a, a postal worker, retired. Had worked for decades. His mother was a, an RN. You know wonderful wonderful people you know who i i i got to know like very intimately you know in terms of like dealing with them and trying to save their son for three years and you know his brother same deal like they like everyone in in the family was just completely normal you know and in terms of kind of what we were talking about yesterday when you're trying to dig into these folks to see if there's like hints from their past as to, like, what would have led them down this road to, you know, is, can it possibly be that this guy is the guy that they're saying that he is,
0: you know? no. as a younger person, did he have any signs of mental illness? Didn't he have a little something in his background?
1: He had, I mean, I think at most it would have been diagnosed as depression, you know? I mean, there was certainly no, like, huge red flag you know, like manic, depressive type things. He didn't have any kind of psychotic episodes like that. You know, like I I told you yesterday, I I think that um, he did suffer from like serious migraines, you know, but he played football for, I think, all four years of high school. You know what I mean? So and like we were kind of talking about yesterday with the kind of head trauma that seems to be a running theme with a lot of serial killers that you know, a lot of them have, had, have suffered head trauma at some point in their lives.
0: Definitely. Every every case I've ever covered, there's been that common denominator of past head trauma,
1: concussion. Which seems to me yeah. like that would be such a big hint for right? people that are studying that type yeah. of shit, like that are trying to figure out what maybe makes these people tick. Mm-hmm. Like for that to kind of go and and, and maybe I'm just... Not knowledgeable, and maybe they are digging into that. I, I just certainly have not seen tons of studies done about that link about the no. head trauma then maybe affecting somebody in the sense mm-hmm. that you know maybe that is the that is the triggering. Right. Of what turns them into what they ultimately become. Mm-hmm. You
0: know? Well, as we know, there are no giant strides being made in the mental health um, field really at all. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely something they need to look into and study more and give more focus to. But yeah, every case I've covered has had an aspect of head trauma, migraines, things like that. Especially a lot of the crazy like pro wrestling cases I've covered, like Chris Benoit and Jimmy snuka and they all had those previous head injuries as well. So Yeah. And they yeah, And ended I can up see murdering. that. I
1: mean, you know, yeah. whatever kind of you of lay in terms of your, your view of professional wrestling, you know, there's always been that debate that, you know, oh, it's fake. Well, <laughs> I mean, that may be true in terms of the outcome, mm-hmm. but in terms of their athleticism and in terms of you know, the maneuvers that they're they're pulling together oh, yeah. so and the, the you know, the violence that exists within that sport. That's very
0: real. There are very real injuries yeah, that happen. No, no, no yeah. question
1: about it. So, you know, I think that the only aspect of wrestling that may have been, you know, like fake in terms of scripted was probably like the outcome, you know, so they kinda had like a narrative or a story going with that. But yeah, I mean that that kind of stuff I, I'm sure that these professional wrestlers were getting concussed constantly. Yeah.
0: You know and I just did another Case Ronald Exantis was a semi-pro football player, and he had a lot of head injury too from his past, and murdered a six-year-old child just yeah. in a like psychotic state. So yeah, and it's it, it, it's
1: you know I mean it's kind of like it's a, a never-ending growing list of professional guys that you know Aaron Hernandez, the mm-hmm. former tight end from right. Patriots, like you know he just lost his shit, yeah, you know and became like I mean a guy who was set. Right. Financially, for no apparent reason, just became murderous. Mm-hmm. You know, you have like Junior Seau. It's it's, it's, it's like mean, a really yeah. long list. You know, and like this Sean is, Gale was a safety. Totally. And you know, the one common denominator is that all of them, when they studied their brains after the fact, they found that they all had CTE. Yeah. You know, so I mean, that's clearly you know an unavoidable link. I think that's what finally pushed the NFL. And it took a lot of bullying to get them to the position because there's so much money at stake. Mm-hmm. You know, the NFL starts worrying, are we viable? Mm-hmm. You know, if, <laughs> you know, if they're going to determine that this is an incredibly hazardous sport for people to play, you know, it then becomes the question of, well, okay, people are making that decision to do so with the knowledge going in, then that's on them. But, you know, is it going to start limiting the pool of, uh, you know, potential players that will actually, like, I probably, never would have allowed my kid to play football, like knowing what I know now yeah. in terms of the brain injuries that take place. You yeah. Know, when I played, you know, they used to call it ringing your bell, you know? It's yep. like you'd yep. you hit your, you know, you'd, you'd literally see the stars mm-hmm. when you had a head-on-head collision and it's like, you know, you'd literally... I'd be woozy, you mm-hmm. know, and and I realized now that I had suffered a concussion, mm-hmm. you know, but the you know, shake it off, you know, get in there for the next play, you know. Yeah. So that that went like unchecked forever. Right. You know, up until very really right. recently. So
0: know. yeah, that's something they definitely have to I mean, that's just we're coming up with these in a few minutes of just sitting here, but there are so many. Even your guy John Wayne Gacy.
1: Totally. Yeah, he had suffered that a head too. injury when he was a kid. Yeah. You know. Um and, and you know, like Gacy and Garcia didn't really show any of the early signs like, you know, like the head on a stick type of animals and torturing animal type stuff that a lot of these guys do. Yeah. Um. You know, neither of them like kind of were into that. No animal
0: um, torture, no fire starting, no bedwetting, none yeah, of that.
1: Like and Garcia was like for all intents and purposes, a pretty normal kid. You know, mm. it was like he was not antisocial. He you know, was a sweet kid, you know, he played, he played sports in high school, you know, he dated girls. He was like a normal, normal kid. And like something at some point, if he's the guy kind of sent him off the rails. No, you know, I mean, and even if he's, if he is the guy or if he's not the guy, either way, you kind of look at it. He's, he was a strange, strange dude. Like when I, when I met him, He was a strange guy, you know. But to me, you know, anyone that would have the opportunity to kind of select what area of medicine that they'd want to practice in and tends to gravitate towards forensic pathology, like where you're dealing with dead people's kind of a (laughs) weird dude to begin with.
0: I agree. And um, Garcia and the Russian. Well, this floors me a little bit and it's a little unsettling. How many wackadoodles there are (laughs) in um, becoming doctors, like talking about Dr. Death and yesterday and um, then these two, they've had, they had like some mental issues and whatever. They are just kind of odd ducks. Didn't get along with people.
1: Yeah. And it's... uh and I I can't remember if I was talking to you this about it off air or on air, but you know, what happened within two months of this case, um, kind of getting on the trial track is that, you know, Illinois, uh, in terms of their, um, licensing committees, you know, obviously contacted us as his counsel and said, look, we're suspending his license obviously. And we said, yeah, we, we understand that. I mean, we're not necessarily going to, you know, fight it at this point. Plus he's incarcerated with no bond and he's going to be in there for a while. So, you know, I mean, do what you're going to do. But what that ultimately ended up doing is they, they changed the law in Illinois because like, I think we did do it on air, but the licensing boards were handling everybody, you know, hairdressers, real estate agents, you know, everyone's and doctors, you know, so they, they started to realize in real short order that, they had to change that, that there had to be way more oversight when you're talking about doctors in terms of licensing. So that actually, they, that like Garcia changed that law in Illinois. Mm-hmm. So kind of going back, so so we've got, um, and you had asked kind of what were the circumstantial evidence. So there's the ping on the phone that puts Garcia in uh, the area of Omaha. Okay, so they, they've got that. And then as they start digging in, and they're obviously refreshing the recollection as to the Hunter killings. So they start looking at all these different things and then they get the second piece of circumstantial evidence which was the Honda CRV. So they see that Anthony Garcia owned, I wanna say it was, I can't remember the year, it might've been a 2003 Honda CRV, but that he owned it at the same time that the Hunter killings had taken place so that was like a huge red flag for them. They're like, okay, so the guys in Omaha on the day of the Brumbeck killings, he owned a CRV. We've got this Mary raffle ganger. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name, right. Cause I don't have it in front of me, but it's something very close to that. Uh, you know, we have her spotting this, this vehicle that is the same make and model as what he owns. So they've got those two things going for them right there. And then, a few days after the murder takes place of the um, Omaha PD gets a phone call from this uh, doctor, Chandra Putra, who says, "You know, I don't know if this has anything to do with anything. You know, I I I really don't. But you know, I know that there's been this link made with Creighton." Um, and I just wanted to let you guys know that on mother's day, um, you know, around two 30 in the afternoon that my house alarm was triggered and, you know, I happened to be out at a mother's day brunch with my family. So we weren't home and, you know, we had been having some problems with that back door where it doesn't lock all the way. It's like, it's like a, like a double door like this. And there's been occasions where, you know, the wind has blown it open because it's not not a securely uh, fashioned door. So much so to the extent that we ended up pushing a couch in front of that door so the door wouldn't blow open anymore. But, you know, our alarm went off. We didn't really think much of it. We thought, again, it was the wind that had just blown the door ajar and that, you know, it got alerted. They called us. We said, we're fine. You know, we're out at, at lunch and then you know and then i see this story breaking news and you know i just thought maybe you you know would want to look into it a little bit right
0: because what was her affiliation with anthony garcia they had something from the past right yeah, so
1: she's she's the instructor that he had the beef with like okay. like a, a like a vocal like screaming match with her like where he was certainly the aggressor you know like he Anthony always felt like he was being discriminated against because of his race. Like, and then like, you know, and, and was, um, Indian or Pakistani, you know, I mean, so she, she was a person of color as well. Right. So that didn't necessarily, you know, make much sense in terms of Anthony feeling like he was being picked on, you know, or, or, you know, singled out because he was Hispanic. You know, it, it was, they just did not get along. Like they, their, their personalities did not mesh. And that was where Hunter had gone to to him and he said, look, that's your instructor. Like you, you have to apologize to her. And he refused to do so. And that was kind of the last straw, right? So immediately when they're digging through the Creighton file, them being the Omaha PD, they see notated in his file, this beef with Butra. So what they do next is they go over and they dust for prints and they look for DNA samples. So, off the handle of the back door, they were able to pull a very degraded, small DNA sample off that, and they sent it off to the lab for testing. So at that point, by the time my client was arrested, they had gotten results back saying that he could not be excluded as being uh, you know the provider of that DNA that they found on butra's door. so at that point, in terms of probable cause, which is what they needed to keep them under arrest and to get it to move past the initial stage of the trial stage where you have to show the judge that there's probable cause for them to move forward to trial, you know, they had the car, they had the mirror presence, and they had the Butra stuff, okay, with, the, with this DNA sample, and they didn't need to get in to the details of the level and the quality of the DNA sample, it was enough for them to just say that he couldn't be excluded as somebody who'd have left the DNA because what they didn't have on Brumbeck, which they did have in their minds as far as the hunters, was that Garcia was in town until after he's arrested after he's arrested, you know they then got his his phones and he had a, a tablet with them. And at that point, they found that he had, at least according to them, that on the tablet, there had been a search on either Google Maps or just Google for Chandra Butra's address. So mm-hmm. they claim that's on his tablet.
0: Yeah. And right. OK, so criminal defense lawyer, Bob, I know you say this is circumstantial evidence, but to me, it this all just seems like overwhelming circumstantial evidence like there's just thing after thing
1: pointing to that he was in town for sure well for sure
0: too many coincidences I think here
1: so so and then they get his phone records and they ping him at um, this wing stop like so he's at a wing stop at like three to 3 15 in the afternoon on Mother's Day mm-hmm. and they got that again from pinging triangulating him so they had him in this particular area like kind of jumping into how we attacked the tablet search, Um, that's a whole thing, you know, because remember, like, we're not just going in speculating, we were hiring experts. So we obviously got experts um, with respect to the technology side of it. And, you know, we had them look at, because essentially what they do is when they get um, anybody's phone, and this is kind of a a little tip for y'all out there, all of our wonderful listeners, that nothing on, the, your, nothing on your phone is ever truly deleted. Oh, okay? shit. Any, anything that you think that you've deleted <laughs> off of your phone is not. So what they took, uh, when they got a copy of all of his data um, from his phone and the tablet, they ran it through this thing that law enforcement uses that's called Cellubrite. And what this does is you take a dummy phone you connect the phone that uh, you're trying to extract the information from and run it into the dummy, the blank phone, the wiped phone. And it, it brings in all the data from that phone into the the wiped clean phone. So through that, that is where they were starting to see all the deleted information from both the tablet as well as uh, his cell phone. And they didn't find anything on his cell phone. But like uh, All that they found in terms of the boot research was on this tablet all right so at that point you know we had hired an expert to say okay take a look at this and we end up finding out and this is kind of like like I don't even feel like we can go here at this point cuz it's, it's there's so much it's <laughs> mm-hmm. like everything that they found we had a direct answer for okay. cuz I get what you're saying on on its face it's pretty damning you Yeah. Know? I mean the guy apparently seems to have beef i mean theoretically he could um, even though I don't think that really adds up in terms of the reality of the situation. You know, you've got him in Omaha for sure through the ping at the, the wing stop on. So they know that he was at, again in Omaha on the on the thirteenth.
0: I mean of, and they have like a trail of receipts and stops between his home and Omaha. So like Yeah, right so he made a
1: stop in your home state in yes, Iowa yeah. in Casey's. Mm-hmm. You know, and he had bought uh, a case of beer there. Okay. Um, they also, uh, again, they have him pinged at the wing stop where he spent like eight bucks. It sounds like he bought like a drink, like a cocktail. Cause they have beverages there. Got like a, you know, some kind of cocktail. I don't know what they ate there. Um, and then, you know, where that really gets interesting in the whole Brombeck timeline is where I'm going to, I'm going to change your mind on it. It's OK, like it's, it's it's not only well, I mean, just kind of harken back to when I was talking about the situation under which a state pigeonholed themselves into that that killing time between 430, 445 on that Sunday where mm-hmm. no one hears gunshots. Right. No one sees anybody strange in the neighborhood. No one sees anybody shooting into the in and, and the way that the Brumbeck neighborhood was situated is you had a long street it was it was like a T. So um, you had the one cross street at the very top where it was, you know, dead ended up there. You Once you hit the end of the street, you had to either turn left or right. The Brombeck's house sat directly in front of what would be the top of the T. So their house was if you were to head down their street and look, you know, straight ahead of you, their house would be at the end of the T, you know, right there. OK, so it was like at the top of kind of the hill a little bit. And straight down, you'd have, you know, the houses on either side of the street. So do you understand how I'm situating mm-hmm, this? Mm-hmm. So, um, in, in these houses were maybe, you know, 12 to 15 yards apart max, you know, I mean, it, these weren't like palatial lots, you know, it was kind of like, a. it was not, uh, as, a Highfalutin neighborhood is Dundee by any stretch. It was mm-hmm. a, a more modest neighborhood, single family homes, and to not have anyone hear anything, mm-hmm. not have anyone see anything, and you know when I start really kind of digging into that, you know, and and the neighbor directly to, if you're staring at the Brumbacks' home, directly to the right of their home was an active Omaha police officer who was actually home that day mm-hmm. with his wife and he didn't hear any gunshots.
0: He's not a person who would have just thought, oh, it's a firecracker either. He knows no. a gunshot when he would hear it. Absolutely. Once.
1: You know, and in, in the state knew that that was an issue. So when I'm cross-examining him, you know, kind of their theory was that, you know, his wife's oxygen tank, because she either had um, COPD, you know, she she had something that required her to have a tank that he said would have been hissing, you know? So on cross examination, I had asked him this question. I said, well, officer, let me ask you this. If a car had been driving in front of your home and had backfired with your wife's tank on, would you hear the backfire from the vehicle? And he said, oh yeah. The gun that we know from ballistics, we know that it was a nine millimeter, which is gonna give off a pretty loud bang, all right? And four of them. But well, if you would have heard a backfire from a vehicle, you certainly would have heard gunshots, you know, from right, you know, so it just didn't happen. It didn't happen. But, but like the biggest, the biggest smoking gun against their timeline was the, which I'll get into, which was the forensic pathologist that we hired talking about the state of the bodies when they were discovered because the Brumbecks were, at least according to the state, were killed on Sunday afternoon not discovered until Tuesday morning mm-hmm. by some piano movers, because the Brumbach right. were, you know, he had a lot of issues at Creighton himself, talking about Roger Brumbeck mm-hmm. a lot to the extent where he was leaving the department. You know, there was a lot of big money things that were going on behind the scenes with respect to the university and, and you know, people were taking exception to some of the things that were going on. When we get to that, it's pretty compelling. So that's kind of where we're at. I mean, at this point, you've got the hunters being have been killed in 2008. You've got the Brumbecks dead in, in 2015. Uh, I'm sorry, 2013. And from that point forward, they, they've they got those three things on Garcia that was enough to get him under arrest. The cops had made the connection with Garcia, Creighton, found out that there are a few smoking gun pieces of evidence out there with respect to... Him, uh, at the very least, being in Omaha, you know, they had to the, pull this DNA off the doorknob of Butcher's house. You know, they had the, the CRV along with one thing that I, I forgot to mention is even though uh, in the 2008, there had been a composite sketch that had been done of the person that the, the neighborhood folks said that they had seen walking around, you'll have to judge for yourself whether or not you think it looks like Garcia.
0: Does the sketch have a meaty face like Garcia? No. <laughs> he has a meaty face. He
1: does. He has a very round meaty face and no like it doesn't. Like this guy's face is pretty oval. His nose looks different. Like quite a bit different. Like I, to me it's not, you know, it's not a very good representation of Garcia if it was Garcia. But, you know, they so they had that. So but in any rate we're we're basically at the point where they like Garcia for the Hunter and Sherman killings. And they also like him for the Brumbeck killings. And they certainly had more evidence in terms of, especially because of his, like that they actually were able to ping him in Omaha for the 2013 killings. So they knew he was there. They knew he was in the state and they knew he was in Omaha on the day. In terms of both crime scenes, the one thing that again did not occur there is no DNA found. And we're talking about, like, like, and I'm talking about anything that would have, you know. I think in Brumbeck there were a few different samples that were taken that did not uh, in any way, shape, or form indicate that it was Anthony Garcia in there. You know, they, they ran the samples against his known sample. And he was excluded as being, you know, the provider of the that particular DNA. So, again, you have two crime scenes, both involved violent knife attacks. The gun, you know, was used obviously to kill Roger, so you're not going to really concern yourself with DNA from that perspective. But the violent knife fight with uh, Mary Brumbeck, to me, just seems illogical that, you know, somebody wouldn't leave some kind of sample. And again, you know, the, the thing that I was talking about with you that I was trying to kind of draw out of you in terms of like not leaving DNA uh, on a scene, and you know, and I asked you, and you said, well, you know, I'd have something covering my feet, you know, I'd have something covering my body, you know, that that's where you know, you were like, I'd slick my hair back with Vaseline, you know, I mean, you'd basically try to make yourself hairless, and you know, kind of like cover as much of your skin as possible because. I mean, even a flake of dry skin is DNA. You know, I mean, it does not take much to leave a sample. And they
0: can find that? Like, oh, oh yeah. How?
1: Well, so the, the DNA sample that they pulled from the doorknob of but- uh, Butra's house, they claim was a drop of sweat. So that's what that sample was, you know.
0: And okay, so it didn't rule him out. It but
1: did, like, yeah, the Butra sample came back super, super weak. And okay. kind of the way that you, um, when you're talking about comparisons, he came back as a one in 12 match for that, meaning that one in 12 human beings on the planet would match that sample. Oh, okay. Like, so it, it wasn't, a, like it didn't match. There was something called alleles when you're dealing with DNA. And it, I think that he had matched on like 13 alleles, you know, and... So we had hired an expert who was brilliant, brilliant DNA guy named Carl Reich. He was a local guy. Uh, we just got lucky that he was local to Illinois. He had the ability to be able to break down DNA to a layman in a way that people could actually understand it. He was adamant that our guy, that was not our guy, you know, and he was able to break down the, you know, kind of the peaks and the alleles and like why, you know, he was able to break it down in such a way that it was clear that that was not Anthony Garcia's DNA. They wanted it to be, you know, they really wanted it to be because it fit their narrative so perfectly. You know, it's like, oh, well, first he tried to go kill Butra. Butra wasn't home, so he audibled, and he decided to go kill the Runbacks instead. You know, and
0: but a drop of sweat could belong to literally anyone, any delivery person, anybody, right? For sure. Well,
1: and and that's what I'm saying. And in, in that particular sample was a one in twelve match to Garcia, meaning that one of the jurors. Would have also been, you know, been able to not be excluded. It was a very, very weak sample. Right. You know what I mean? So like when you're talking about DNA, you want that like one in three billion. Like Mm -hmm. it's just like, it can't be anybody else. It's yours. Right. You know, this was not that, you know, and and further this guy's MO. If it's, if it's Garcia doing both of these things is not, he doesn't creep around to the back door. This guy walks right up to your front door, rings the doorbell and commences to killing. Like, that's, yeah. like, he wasn't the backyard creeper guy. So, just a different M.O. Like, why would he go to the back door at Butra's, as opposed to doing what he does where he just goes to the front door? Or
0: well, it's not like he had a well-established M.O. <laughs> mo yet either. It was only his second time that we know of, so.
1: Yeah, but both times have. he went to the front door. I mean, that's yeah. established. It's just, it's more established than going to the back door. True. All right.
0: And this is where we're going to end part three of our deep dive into the Anthony Garcia case with Bob Mata and Darren Wood of the Defense Diaries podcast. We've got two more enthralling episodes left in this multi-part series, so you're going to want to check those out and see how this story ends. And if you're still hungry for more about the Anthony Garcia case, well, you're in luck because the Defense Diaries will be doing an entire season of their podcast about Anthony Garcia and his trial. That's right. Season two of The Defense Diaries is going to be all about Bob Mata's role in this trial. And you're really going to want to hear that. This is Kelly Barron's Brink from True Crime IRL signing off and reminding you, until next time, lock your doors, people. Just lock those doors. (laughs) Bye-bye. True Crime IRL is written, produced, and hosted by Kelly Barron's Brink. We are part of That's Not Canon Network and TNC Productions in Brisbane, Australia. For more information, go to truecrimeirl.com. True Crime IRL theme music is produced by the captain at True Crime Garage.